we are going to move into our time of uh, teaching now. Uh, and we're going to build really on what we've just been doing, uh, which is the whole concept and the idea of prayer. Daniel chapter 9 is an incredible chapter, but it's a great go-to chapter to understand the importance of prayer. Obviously, every week as a fellowship, we spend time. Uh, midweek in prayer on Sunday mornings is an important part of our service. And, you know, for a lot of Christians, prayer is a small part of their life that they you know, squeeze in here and there. Um, but prayer is so vitally important. Um, so thank you, gentlemen, for leading us in those prayers. And as we go into this study, hopefully uh, you'll be encouraged to pray more uh, this morning as a result of these things. So Daniel chapter nine is without doubt one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Now, it's a pretty kind of bold claim, uh, pretty audacious to say that, because there are lots of chapters in the Bible that are obviously are very important. But uh, this chapter contains one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Bible. Uh, and it follows on from probably one of the most remarkable prayers in the Bible. Uh, the prophecy that we are not going to get to this week, because there's a lot in this chapter, so we'll, we'll save the prophecy itself for next week, uh, Lord willing. But the, the prophecy provides, I believe, irrefutable evidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. It's something you can show to anybody, Christian, non-Christian, and if they are prepared to look at this objectively, they will realize that the only way we can have this prophecy, these details recorded over 500 years in advance that were fulfilled, and you'll see next week, on the exact day, is that precise, the only way that can be is if God is in complete control and has engineered all these things, and this really is his word. You know, the, the fact that we have this prophecy sets this chapter apart in many respects. Um, but what we also see in the prophecy is that it lays out God's plan for the nation of Israel from the time of the Babylonian captivity until the second coming of Jesus. So it's really important in terms of understanding God's plan and the scope of history and so on. The details it gives us uh, show us that the prophetic events that are spoken of uh, are actually on our horizon now. You know, we are right near the fulfillment of these things that Daniel is going to have revealed to him. You know, uh, we're going to see a world leader emerge from within the nations that made up the old Roman Empire. He's going to step onto the world scene and he's going to do what presidents and kings and politicians have been unsuccessful in doing. And that is bringing about peace in the Middle East. You know, it's a constant news item for us, uh, the problems that are going on in Israel uh, and the surrounding nations. Well, this individual that's going to come will do just that. He will bring peace in the Middle East, but it will be a false peace. He's going to shatter it after three and a half years. It will all be for his own purposes and to his own ends. Um, so we're going to see all these things played out. Ultimately, what we see here is that it's God that rules in the kingdoms of men. And that's one of the constant themes that comes through this incredible study, this book of Daniel. Ultimately, God is going to give control of this earth not to any normal regular king or politician, but it's going to be given to his own son, to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign over planet Earth. That may sound a preposterous claim to people in the world. They have no regard for Jesus whatsoever. The thought of this ancient historical figure uh, coming back and ruling on Earth just seems impossible. And yet, as you start to dig it into the Bible, you start to understand what Scripture says. You realize this isn't just some fanciful religious notion that this is real. Reality, and it will come to pass as these prophecies have done. So uh, we have an exciting journey ahead of us this morning. 
What I thought would be really helpful, though, is to do a quick review of Israel's history. Why so? Well, if you remember, at the end of last week, at the end of chapter 8, Daniel, we're told, was sick many days. Okay, He, he was troubled by what he'd seen. Now, if you remember what he'd seen in pre previous two chapters, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, he was told that there were going to be Gentile nations that were going to come to the fore, that were going to rule the whole earth. Uh, and for Daniel, this was troubling because he also saw that his own people, the Jews, would suffer persecution. And so he was really troubled by all of these things. Well, almost as a counter to that now, God gives him this revelation that we're going to see in this chapter as a way of comforting him, to assure him that, yes, those things will happen. But God has not finished with Israel. God still has a plan and a purpose for them. And yes, these Gentile nations, these four beasts that Daniel saw in chapter seven and then broken down, as we saw last week, a little bit more detail, uh, that will all come to pass. And obviously for us, a lot of that's now history. It did come to pass, but that God still has a plan for his people, Israel. So that's where we'll be going. But let's have a quick review just of the, the history of the nation. Hopefully this will be helpful. Now, we're all familiar, I'm sure, that, that God called this man Abraham uh, out of this idol-worshipping Gentile culture, Ur of the Chaldees, and he changes his name to Abraham. He breathes that breath on him, as it were. Uh, the Spirit fills Abraham. And in Genesis 12, we have incredible prophecies given regarding the future of this nation. Now, the reason God brings the nation about is so that he can bring the Messiah into the world. It's as if it were like an incubator, uh, a safe place where God could have a nation set apart from the world that would be uncontaminated from the rest of the world through whom the Messiah could come. Because, of course, that will be a blessing to all nations. Now, of course, there are conditions that God gives to Israel, things that he expects of them. Um, there are unconditional promises made. That's absolutely true. Uh, but there were conditions that were given. Now, of course, this promise that the land would be theirs forever, regardless, was given to Isaac. It was reiterated to Jacob and then to Joseph. We then see that they endure 430 years of oppression. Now, that 430 years begins with Ishmael oppressing Isaac. Uh, and then ends with this hard bondage down in Egypt. They weren't in Egypt for the whole of the 430 years. A lot of commentators miss that. They get that wrong. Uh, they're only actually in Egypt in total for 215 years. And you can work this out. It's in the text. Um, but as a result of this hard period of bondage, they come out of Egypt uh, as a nation. Of course, Moses leads them out, is the one that God calls to deliver them, to set them free, so that they can then come back into their own land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But of course, before they could come into the land, something else had to be done, and that was the giving of the law. The law was so important. We're told in the book of Galatians, the law was given to show us we're sinful, to confine all under sin, to show that we needed a saviour. The law was so vitally important that God were to bring it in. Of course, it's given to Israel. It's a law that God gives to them. But of course, the overflow of that is it applies to us. Uh, the things that God has given, as Nick was sharing this morning, uh, the basic tenets of the law are full of wisdom and common sense uh, for us. And if we follow them, we do well. Now, included in the law, there was a specific a requirement for them to keep the Sabbath. Now, of course, the Saturday Sabbath, uh, part of Exodus 20, verse 11, uh, the fact that God made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them in six days and rested on the seventh. God therefore says to Israel, so you're to rest on the seventh day. But there was more than just that. The Sabbath is much broader than one day a week. 
the Sabbath also had to do with sevens uh, in various ways. Now, one of the way that plays out is that the land was also to enjoy a Sabbath every seventh year. So for six years, they would sow the land and do everything they do. But the seventh year, the land would lay fallow and they'd leave the land. It's good for the soil. It's good for the nutrients to return and so on. Of course, uh, today, everything's all based upon uh, money and produce and everything else. And we don't tend to do that. But even studies have shown the benefit of leaving the land, leaving a field just to grow uh, wild, whatever it wants to for a year uh, before you carry on extracting from it but this was a, a condition this was part of the law that god had given now as a result of this god had given them very strict rules if you obey then i'll bless if you disobey then these things will come upon you now let's just look at some of those things because if we read in leviticus 25 verses 3 and 4 uh, we read this six years thou shalt sow thy field and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof but in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. <clears throat> and in uh, in verse uh, chapter 26, picking up verse 31, we read the uh, punishment that God says would be met upon them if they didn't obey. Okay, And we pick up verse 31 of Leviticus 26, and it says, And I will make your cities a waste and bring your sanctuaries, notice this, unto desolation. And I will not smell the savour of your sweet odours. And I will bring them, speaking of the sacrifices, it's saying that the Lord was taking them out so they wouldn't be able to offer sacrifices. And I will bring the land into desolation, as twice it's been mentioned there. And your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And then notice the the scary and prophetic uh, warning in verse 33. And I will scatter you among the heathen. And I will draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your city's waste. Notice three times in these three verses, we spoke, this land is spoken of as becoming a desolation. Okay, verse 31, verse 32, and in verse 33, God was very serious. And we'll see how this was fulfilled in a moment. And then uh, the portion finishes verse 34 and 35 of Leviticus 26. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lays desolate and be in your enemy's land. Uh, and, so, yeah, and you shall be in your enemy's land uh, and the land shall rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lays desolate, it shall rest because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwell upon it. So God is saying to Israel before they even entered the land, let your land rest every seventh year. If you don't, I will take you out of the land and I will give the land the rest that you should have given it. So that's a basic principle that we find laid down in the law. Now, of course, we know that Joshua then succeeds Moses. He brings the children of Israel into the promised land and we have the whole conquest of Canaan. Interestingly, we have 10 nations that are spoken of. Three of them fall before they move into the land and then seven are subdued. It's incredible how the book of Joshua is a model in advance of the book of Revelation. We haven't got time to go into the details of that, but it's fascinating. But that leads on then to the time of the judges and the, the real refrain that keeps coming back from the book of Judges is that everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. That era closes with, of course, the prophet Samuel, who was a really godly man. That leads on to the time of the monarchy. Now, this was another key tenant. This had to be established. Of course, Jesus is going to rule and reign, but the monarchy originally had to be established to make way, therefore, for the Messiah to come and to sit on the throne of David. 
Now, before we get to that point, the history of Israel from the monarchy's perspective was such that Saul becomes the first king and then David and then Solomon. I'm sure we know the history. But then the kingdom is divided. Uh, as a result of Solomon's apostasy toward the end of his life, the Lord rends the kingdom from him, uh, but leaves him a portion. So Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, ends up becoming king of the southern kingdom, as it's referred to, which is the area of Judah. You can see highlighted there on the screen. And predominantly it was the tribe of Judah, but Benjamin were amongst it. And then all the godly from the other tribes all migrated south as well. So we don't have any lost tribes as some myths have uh, propagated. And then in the north, we have Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who causes Israel to sin. He leads them into idolatry. Uh, he becomes the first king of the northern kingdom. And those down south that uh, wanted to worship idols all go up north and so on. So this kind of intermingling. The northern kingdom is made up of 20 kings over a period of time. And finally, because of their uh, idolatry and so on, they're led into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 BC, a milestone date in Israel's history. But then the southern kingdom, there's also 20 kings, and they're then led into the Babylonian captivity, which is what we've been really focusing on and looking at for much of our study in Daniel. That occurs in 606 BC. So why the captivity? So why did God take the southern kingdom into captivity? Uh, well, this is what we read in 2 Chronicles 36. Therefore, God uh, brought upon them the king of the Chaldees. This is obviously Nebuchadnezzar, Chaldees, Babylon, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. Okay, so you get the idea of what Jer uh, uh, Leviticus had said earlier about it becoming a desolation. Well, this is the fulfillment. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. Now, Daniel, of course, was amongst that group that were taken away to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill Notice what we're told, three score and 10 years, 70 years. OK, so this is the really important part. God says, because you didn't keep the land Sabbath that I told you you should, I will do exactly what I said to you and I will take you away from your land and the land will enjoy the Sabbath for. Notice the, the, the specific details for 70 years, for three score, that's 60 and then 10 to so 70 years was to be the time. So that's our, our background of the history of the nation, really, that's relevant for this. So that's where we're going to pick up now. We'll jump into chapter one of Daniel, uh, sorry, verse one of Daniel chapter nine. And we read, in the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, a few things we just want to pull out of this verse, just so we understand the chronology, the timing of these things. So we're told now it's the first year of Darius. All right. So we recognize the timing we are. The Babylonian Empire has fallen. The Medo-Persian Empire has just come to the fore. So uh, we find this is 12 years now that have passed since the last vision that Daniel had in chapter eight. 
the mighty Babylonian Empire has fallen to the hands of the Persians. Uh, and again, that's the vision that Daniel had seen that we looked at in chapter eight, uh, the vision of the ram uh, that comes uh, that was raised up on one side and so on. And uh, now, interestingly, Isaiah had prophesied all of this 200 years before. In fact, that's what we were looking at in our Bible study on Thursday in Isaiah 46. Really worthwhile studying that in connection with this. You'll see how these things were already spoken of in advance. Chronologically, uh, we've mentioned already the book of Daniel is really arranged into two sections. The historical chapters one to six and then from seven through twelve are the visions. But in terms of the way they actually occur, you notice that we are now towards the uh, the latter end of Daniel's life as he receives this vision. As I said, about 12 years after the previous vision that he'd seen in chapter eight. And uh, Daniel somewhere in the re region of about 83 years old now. Uh, the point that he's receiving this vision, uh, very significant. He's an old man, but still walking with the Lord and trusting God. Now, the other thing to note from verse one is that we're told that Darius here, this king, was made king. All right, he was appointed to be king. Now, this is quite significant because, you know, what we understand is as well, this is about two, uh, sorry, about a year or so after the lion's den incident of chapter six, because uh, Darius becomes obviously a good friend with uh Daniel and the whole that leads to the chapter six situation where they try to the the other rulers over the land try and entrap Daniel and so on um, but this is interesting again that, that Darius was made king appointed and it confirms what we know from secular history regarding a character by the name of Guberu now we believe that they're the same character the same person they both seem to fulfill or fit exactly the same um, pattern so uh, both we know were appointed by Cyrus so Guberu certainly was uh, his military general who took Babylon uh, from um, King uh, Belshazzar on the night of the feast with the writing on the wall and so on. Gubra was the one that masterminded and led the army in. Um, and so seemingly he's the one that then is appointed to rule over uh, Babylon, which of course is what D Darius does. Darius is, or Darius, however you wish to pronounce, uh, is a title. So seemingly Gubra is given this title of Darius. Uh, there's um, some interesting uh, reasons why we understand that he was of Medan descent, hence the title Darius the Mede. Uh, his ascension year. Now, the, it's important if you are going to get into the chronology, you understand that with the Babylonians, they had an ascension year. That was the year they became king. And then the first year of their reign would technically be what you and I would think would be the second year. So the ascension year is the year they become king, but the year of the re year, year of reign would be the first year, which means that this is the first year of Darius, and it means we're going to be in about 537 BC. Why is that significant? Well, because that's the year that Cyrus signs a decree to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. Okay, we've got evidence of that in the British Museum, the Steel of Cyrus and so on. It's one of those kind of fixed dates of history. There's a lot of evidence, a lot of historical and secular support for these things. Um, but it's a really important time for the nation of Israel. 537 is the year that they are allowed to leave Babylon and return back to their own land. Babylon, the empire, was vast, but it was totally eclipsed by the Persian Empire. Now, let's just carry on to verse 2, because we read, In the first year of his reign, so we're looking at about 537 BC, I, Daniel, understood by the books, I love Daniel, as a man that read clearly, the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. 
that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, we've been talking already about this prophecy, the, the Leviticus portion that said this would happen, and then the end of Chronicles and so on. We're told the details of uh, that this did come to pass, as God had said it would, because they didn't keep the Sabbaths. Uh, but Daniel now understands from the writings of Jeremiah that this period of 70 years would come to pass. Now, there's a lot here that's easy to miss if we're not careful. Uh, notice this expression, the desolations of Jerusalem. And we're going to highlight this. We've already mentioned it. But I want you also to be aware that we have a literal fulfillment of this prophecy. Okay, It's not allegorical. When scripture interprets scripture, it's always literal. I mean, I'll just give you a few examples. Isaiah spoke of a virgin birth, a virgin that would conceive and bring forth a son. That was fulfilled literally, of course, with Jesus. You know, we're told that Israel will be dispersed among the nations. That was fulfilled literally. We're told that Jerusalem, Jesus said, will be destroyed and not a stone left upon another. That was fulfilled literally, because obviously when the temple was burned, the gold was on the stones. And literally, they took the temple apart stone by stone to recover the gold of the Romans. Nineveh eventually was destroyed literally. Tyre, we are told prophetically, was to become a, a place of mending of nets. It was literally fulfilled. Uh, and also the Tyre, the city will be wiped into the sea. Alexander the Great did that. It was literally fulfilled. We're told that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That was fulfilled literally. That a gathering of Israel would take place. That it would be born in a day. All of those things fulfilled literally. So be very careful when people tell you that we can interpret it allegorically. It doesn't really mean this. It's trying to point to something else. It all comes under a heading referred to as hermeneutics. And it's really how you interpret the Bible. Now, really, the best way of doing it is let the Bible interpret itself. Uh, that will lend us to the, our literal interpretation. But there are many, and it really came about very much, uh, not exclusively, but from about the third century onwards uh, with people like um, uh, Oregon and then Augustine and others that led to this um, uh, idea that things weren't really to be understood literally, that they were pointing to something else, uh, an allegorical, you know, it doesn't mean that, it kind of means this, it's a spiritual kind of fulfillment type thing. And now many denominations, uh, and I would hesitate, to say, oh, I would actually go as far as saying that there's probably most denominations err to the allegorical understanding in regard to these prophecies, despite the fact that we've got the evidence from the Bible and history to show that prophecies always fulfilled literally. And then we've got the fundamentalists, which would include, I believe, myself, certainly, and probably yourself, I hope. You know, fundamentalist is not a bad word. It's, it's been given a bad uh, name because it's associated with uh, terror and all sorts of things. But a fundamentalist is somebody that just simply sticks to the fundamentals. You know, a football referee is a fundamentalist. He sticks to the fundamentals. You know, whenever you're on board a plane, you really hope you've got a fundamentalist pilot flying that thing that knows what he's doing and how he's going to get there and what the controls are for. He's going to use them for what the manual tells him he should. You know, if you're ever in hospital and having an operation, you want a fundamentalist surgeon operating on you, not an allegorical one. Oh, well, it doesn't really. We could do this. We could, you know, you want somebody that sticks to the fundamentals. So fundamentalism is not a bad thing. Of course, the issue is, what are your fundamentals? That becomes the question. Well, for us as Christians, our fundamentals are the Bible. That's as simple as that. And we stick to the Bible. We let the Bible interpret the Bible, and it makes so much sense. 
you know otherwise you're in that position of you know well does the text mean what it says and do we have to interpret a hidden meaning and then it becomes very subjective it's kind of down to everybody's opinion and that's why when uh, non-believers say oh well you know there's lots of interpretations well that's because people don't take the bible seriously if you take the bible seriously then you won't come up with lots of interpretations the bible just says what the bible says let's get back to the text then so Daniel understood. Now, what did he understand? Now, again, this desolations of Jerusalem. Now, I believe that the, what Daniel understands by reading Jeremiah's prophecy were that there were two periods of 70 years. They weren't coterminous. They didn't start and end at the same time. Now, there was one period of 70 years for the people, and that had now come to an end. And this is why I believe Daniel starts studying and finding out because the nation has been allowed by Cyrus. We know it's the same year that uh, Darius is on the throne and, and uh, ruling over Babylon. It's the first year of Darius's reign. It's the same year that's the first year of Cyrus's reign. And that's when the children of Israel are allowed to go home. These things happen at the same time. So I believe Daniel is saying, well, hang on. The children of Israel have been allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But why? Are we still in this situation? And he reads Jeremiah and he kind of clicks. Hang on, there's a second period of 70 years. There's two periods. The first one that we'll talk about in a second, known as the servitude of the nation, that's come to an end. But Daniel understands, hang on, there's another period that God is going to accomplish 70 years. And he specifically says in the desolations of Jerusalem. So one period of 70 years for the people and another for the land. And what Daniel will realize, I believe, is that desolations still have another 19 years to run. Let's look at what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah, in regard to the servitude of the nation. Okay, so this is the people, not the land, the people. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. A little bit like today, isn't it? We've got a lot of people coming saying they're speaking on God's behalf. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. Now, these are all things that we, we understand. Now, notice again, this period of 70 years specifically, and God is going to cause them to return to Jerusalem. And then we have that famous verse that's so often quoted out of context. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now, uh, you may think I'm splitting hairs this, but I love the way the King James, James translates this. Uh, the modern versions tend to give this a bit of airy, fairy, fluffy bunny stuff because it becomes just a future and a hope. Well, what does that really mean, a future and a hope? You know, this is far more precise. That God is giving them an expected end. It's definitive. It's clear. It's something that is going to happen that is irrefutable. God is not going to change his mind in regard to this. He's not just hoping that something might happen. But God makes this promise, Daniel aware of this, that God would visit them and they'd be caused to return to their place. Now, I believe at the point that Daniel is... Recording these things in chapter 9, this has taken place, that God has visited them. Cyrus has signed that decree. We know it's at the same time, as I said a moment ago. And now they have gone home. The children of Israel, Daniel, he's an old man by this point, 83, 84 years old. He stays in Babylon. He's too old to make that journey. But no, but his heart is very much still in Jerusalem. 
Now, the servitude of the nation began when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege uh, in the summer of 606 BC. Daniel then was deported to Babylon. So 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem. Uh, and we believe it's about the 23rd of July that year. Uh, and that servitude ends then with the decree of Cyrus in the summer of 537 BC. Now, that's the moment we're looking at here. Uh, that's where Daniel is as we're recording this. Uh, and again, it had been around about 20th of July, 537 BC. Now, the interval is 25,200 days. It's exactly, it's precise. The Bible, when it deals prophetically in, in these, these ideas, these years that are prophesied, always works on 360 days. Now, we haven't got the time this morning to go into why that is the case. There's a lot of historical support for the idea that the Earth was once on a 360-day orbit. Currently, we're on a 365 and a quarter day orbit of the sun. But once it seems to be 360 day orbit of the sun. And that's why we have 360 degrees in the circle. It wasn't because the Babylonians who came up with that were ignorant and they couldn't work out how long the year was. No, they were probably far more precise than we were in many respects. No, it was because I believe, and again, a lot of historical support for this, that the Earth was once on a 360 day orbit. And so the Bible works on that basis. Uh, this time, 70 years made up of 360 days each gives us a total of 25,200 days. So we know the exact time frame of these prophecies that they were to be spending this time in Babylon. Just to try and make it clear, 606 BC is the first siege. Those 70 years that we've said already culminate in this decree of Cyrus in 537. And this is when Jeremiah uh, is read by Daniel, Jeremiah 25. Uh, and Daniel realizes that this uh, period of time, that the, the nation is allowed to go home, but there's still a problem. It's still a problem in regard to Jerusalem itself. And this is the desolation of Jerusalem that Daniel is now understanding. Let me read from Jeremiah 25 now. And this is the bit I believe that uh, Jeremiah, that Daniel reads. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, notice, and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and perpetual desolation. Just want to clarify uh, the word we have there, perpetual, um, because it's not implying that the land would remain forever in a state of disrepair. The word perpetual uh, literally is olam in the Hebrew, and it means a vanishing point or time out of mind. So it will make them an astonishment and a hissing for as, for as long as you can see. That's the idea. And it really is. It's a lifetime, isn't it? 70 years, these things that take place. So that's the prophecy that is given by Jeremiah. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle. And this whole land shall be a desolation. Notice the land again is in view here and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, the start point of this period of desolations is, of course, the final siege of Jerusalem, which took place in 587 BC when Zedekiah was the king. There's three sieges of Jerusalem, 606, that first one when Daniel's taken away. Ezekiel then is taken away in the second siege in 597. Ten years later, while Ezekiel is in Babylon himself, 
he receives this word from the Lord and this understanding. And again, in the ninth year, the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, unto Ezekiel, saying, now, Ezekiel in Babylon at this point, son of man, write thee the name of the day. Even of this same day, the king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem this same day. So he's told to not to note and to mark the day that it is. And we're told, again, it's the ninth day of the tenth month uh, in the tenth day of the month, ninth year, tenth month, tenth day of the month. So that's when this starting point for the desolations begin. Now, in the book of Haggai, we find the conclusion of this period of time. And we read, and now I pray, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. And so Haggai records the day the desolations finally do come to an end. Now, this is yet future for Daniel, um, but at the time the army was surrounding uh, Jerusalem, Ezekiel again was recording the first day, which we've seen, and Haggai nails the end date. So we've got the beginning and the end of this second period of 70 years that Daniel seemingly now in this uh, portion in chapter 9 is understanding. Again, the interval, 25,200 days, as we said already, 70 years, 360 days each. <clears throat> so if we look at the third siege, 587, 70 years are accomplished in uh, Babylon. And then finally, we come to 518 and we have a decree of Darius. Now, this isn't Darius that we're looking at in this chapter. This is not Darius the Mede. This is Darius the Great. This is another one of the Persian kings who would come later. If we look at the kings of Persia, uh, you can see there, of course, Cyrus at the top uh, was the one that uh, is ruling when Babylon is uh, defeated. Uh, Darius Gubaru rules Babylon for only a couple of years. Uh, not, not a particularly long period of time. Uh, and then Cyrus's son and so on, you see. And then you get down to uh, Darius the Great. And this is the detail that we're given in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and so on. Uh, yeah, Darius the Great is the one that allows the rebuilding of the temple. Okay, uh, so let's uh, move on. Let me just show you then these three or so the two sieges that we're, we're kind of interested in here. So the first siege, 606 uh, BC, is concluded in 537. That's a period of 70 years. But then 19 years later, we have the third siege when Jerusalem itself, the city is finally destroyed. And that then comes to an end 70 years later with the decree of Darius. Now, once again, the point is that we're looking at that just about the time of the decree. Cyrus signs is when Finally, the children of Israel are allowed back to the land, but the temple is not rebuilt for another 19 years. Okay, It's quite a staggering thought to think they were back there for this entire time and nothing took place. We'll comment in a while. And let's go on to the, to the carrying back into the text of chapter nine. So, and I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Notice that Daniel is really sincere here. He's praying, he's seeking God. Notice he doesn't just pray to God, prays to the Lord God we have. You know, it's important that we have that reverence and respect for God when we pray. Uh, and he seeks by prayer and supplication with fasting. Fasting is a, a great thing to do. It brings us closer to God. It gets our focus off the flesh and onto the spiritual things. And again, with sackcloth and ashes. Uh, we know Daniel was a man of prayer. We've seen that in chapter six already. But we read, and I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, and notice how Daniel begins the prayer. O Lord, 
the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. You know, Daniel's humility is seen here straight away, uh, but Daniel appeals to God's goodness. You know, that really is the only basis for our appeal anyway. You know, Daniel starts in the same way that Jesus said we should start when we pray by acknowledging God, who God is, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. And Daniel prays this prayer and says, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keep it in covenant mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Doesn't immediately go in with his request. Really important lesson in prayer. Always come before the throne and acknowledge who God is. That firstly will help to change your perspective of your own situation when you realize that God really is in control of all these things. And then Daniel begins and notice he says, we have sinned. You know, Daniel is one of only a few in scripture of whom no sin is recorded and yet acknowledges here the nation's sin as his own. You know, really, this is intercession. He says, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. I mean, these things, he's pouring his heart out to God and, uh, you know, just confessing the sins of the nation, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets which spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all people of the land. Now, you've only got to read books like Jeremiah to realize how the people of the land totally rejected the prophets. Jeremiah, case in point. You know, we live in a, a similar time where people don't regard prophecy. Uh, people are interested in experience. They're interested in uh, all sorts of wonderful things that go on, the new moves of the spirit and so on that we hear about within the church. And yet when it comes to God's word, when it comes to prophetic scripture, people tend to brush it aside. They're not interested. Well, it was no different in Daniel's time, in the time leading up to the captivity. Daniel's confession here, he says, first of all, we have sinned, you know, and of course, we're told in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fallen short. He says we've committed iniquity. Now, the idea here is with knowledge, with intent, it's not just stumbling, it's not just missing the mark, which is sin, but iniquity really speaks of our own twisted uh, human nature. And he says with knowledge, we've sinned as well. He says we've done wickedly. You know, and that's the outworking of character that is not in tune with God. He says we've rebelled and that's the result of a defiant life, that conscience that becomes seared as with a hot iron that Paul speaks of. Departing from thy precepts and thy judgments, you know, it's rejecting truth in favor of lies. Well, our culture has done that. The church by and large has done that. He carries on, he says, neither hearken to the prophets. And you think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Hosea, Ezekiel. Uh, I mean, Lord willing, we're going to move into the book of Hosea once we've finished in Daniel. Uh, and you'll see there the heart of Hosea just to try and get the people to listen. And of course, Jeremiah refers to as the weeping prophet, gave his life to warn the people to speak God's word, God's truth to them. But they said, we don't want to hear. We don't want to listen to you. You know, they don't want to hear God's voice in their life because, of course, it brings conviction. It demands change. Of course, most notably, Moses, uh, you know, Moses had given clear instructions. And we've seen already from Leviticus what would happen uh, if they didn't keep the Sabbath and that being played out now. 
You know, do we hear the prophets? You know, we've got the likes of John and Jude and Paul and Peter and James, all who spoke of the deception that will be coming in the last days and how we need to be so vigilant as we look at these things. But then we've got modern day prophets. They wouldn't necessarily refer to themselves as prophets, but people that warn us about what's going on in our days. People like Amir Safati that most of us are familiar with. Jonathan Kahn, another individual that I encourage you to read some of the things he's written. Really quite uh, challenging drawn straight out of God's word. Uh, Dave Hunt, of course, has gone before us. He's now at home with the Lord, as is Chuck Smith and Chuck Misler. But the things they spoke still speak to our generation of our need to be aware of the deception that's around us. So Daniel just making this confession, but these things could apply equally in our day. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs unto thee. Now we're going to see here this contrast between God's righteousness and that which the people professed. But unto us confusion of faces, as at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and are far not far off, uh, though all thy countries whither thou hast driven them. Notice this promise that God would drive them out of their land if they disobeyed. Because of their trespass, they have trespassed against thee. There's a reason for it. O Lord, to us belongs confusion of face, to our kings and our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. Now, notice again, this is the, the contrast. O Lord, righteousness belongs to thee, but what have we got? Well, we've got confusion of faces. Do you see what happens when we reject God and his law and his rules? It just brings confusion. And isn't that what we see going on in our country today, in our schools today? To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness. Now, Daniel here um, really appealing to God on the fact that God is a merciful God, because that's what he's speaking for. He's asking God to show mercy. But he says, Lord, to you belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. He says, neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. You know, so again, God is a God of forgiveness, even though we've rebelled against him. And that's the plea that Daniel is bringing. Now, of course, we have a plea and it's because of Jesus, only because of Jesus. Isaiah 53 speaks of all that was accomplished on the cross, of course. Yeah. And verse 10 uh speaks of the purpose of the law here to, to confine all other sin to show us that we're sinful you know neither have we obeyed the voice of the lord our god to walk in his laws you see and by breaking his laws we sh- it's shown that we are an offense to god that we need a savior the purpose of the lord to confine all under sin galatians 3 22 we mentioned that earlier Verse 11, yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. Notice what Daniel says. He says that this was all written down in the law of Moses. I just want to highlight this. I was having a conversation. Uh, yeah, I will name names. It was with Steve Chalk. I'm sure some of you have heard of Steve Chalk. Uh, he finds himself uh, on TV from time to time. Uh, he uh, is the head of Oasis Trust and uh, supposedly a Christian organization. Uh, Steve Chalk told me face to face that the uh, first five books, sorry, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis were Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. Uh, didn't believe that they were an authentic historical account, totally rejects that God created and so on, and has some other very abhorrent views on scripture and the atonement and so on. 
Yeah. And, you know, clearly this is an individual that has not read the Bible because he says that those things were written down in Babylon. It's just Hebrew poetry. Well, Daniel, who was in Babylon, tells us that it was the law of Moses, the servant of God, who recorded those things. Well, Daniel was there. He says it was Moses. Jesus said it was Moses. Sorry, Steve Chalk and everybody else. I, I think you're uh, way off the mark. Uh, and he says the law of Moses, servant of God, because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. You see, none of this would make sense if it wasn't for the fact that the God had warned them in the law that these things would come upon them. And the fact that then they went and disobeyed so that these things did come upon them. For under the whole heaven has not been done as has been done upon Jerusalem. And we carry on uh, and we read. Verse 13, as it is written, again, just in case you weren't sure, it's twice reiterated here, two witnesses, as it is written in the law of Moses. Okay, all this evil is come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Daniel pleading here, saying, look, the nation has messed up. We didn't trust you. We went off into our idolatry. We didn't learn from the law and these things have come upon us. Just confess your sins. Therefore, has the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he does, for we obeyed not his voice. And Daniel confessing that this has happened. It's our own fault. God warned us and we still disobeyed. You know, none of us have got an excuse if we go off into sin. And then a surprise to the consequences. And there will be consequences for sin. You know, not least the moment a believer tries to indulge in sin, it will rob you of your joy. Um, joy did a study for the ladies uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, she read some of the notes through to me. And I was really touched by some of those things. That the, the joy is such an important thing for us as believers. And we take it for granted. Uh, but sin will rob us of our joy. Uh, so be be aware there are consequences, just as Israel were experiencing. You know, and notice again that the promised judgment was not allegorical. I think I've hammered that one already, but just be 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 vigilant and be aware that the prophecies are all literally fulfilled. And then the end of this section we come, and now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and has gotten thee renown as at this day. Now, notice this, because he refers to the fact that God brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And he says, and has gotten the renown. In other words, your name is great because of this. And notice what he compares it to as at this day, you know, as it is today. Why, why is he making that comparison? Well, as again, as I've already said, we know because it's clear in the text that the first year of Cyrus and the first year of Darius were the same year. First year of Cyrus is when the Jews return home. So I believe that as Daniel writes this, he is aware either the decree has just been signed or they're on their way home or they've just got back to Jerusalem. But either way, that decree has now been signed. And so he says, you brought us out of Egypt and you've got a great name for that as it is this day. And I think that's the comparison. And then he ends the section in the same way that he began in verse five by saying, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. It's almost as if Daniel pauses for breath now. That's all been confession for the people. Now, remember, there was two periods of 70 years of judgment. The first one, the servitude of the nation. That's what we've just been dealing with, why they were there in the first place, Israel's sins. And Daniel has been repenting and pleading with mercy for God from God for those things. 
You know, he says we have sinned, and that's because we are sinners, and we've also sinned through choice, as he's already highlighted. Now, Daniel now changes his focus, and he prays for what might be rather than what has been. Up until now, it's been a prayer of repentance for what has happened. Now, the servitude of the nation has now ended. Daniel's prayer to this point has been confessing the sin that brought the servitude about in the first place. And now we see a shift in emphasis from the people of Israel to the city of Jerusalem. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, I beg thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from, notice here we go, thy city Jerusalem. So now the shift in terms of not praying for the people anymore, confessing their sin, but pleading with God for Jerusalem, which at this point was laying in ruins. It was desolate. Thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now we're going to see from verse 16 to verse 19, the city is mentioned eight times. So we clearly see this shift in emphasis and his prayer is not now for forgiveness for the past, but for mercy in the present. You see these highlighted, the number of times it's mentioned. Now, therefore, verse 17, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon the sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. See, once again, the prayer for the sanctuary. That's back in Jerusalem. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. This is one of the most passionate prayers in the entire Bible. Notice his appeal. Notice the basis of his appeal. It's not because we deserve it, but because you're a great God, because you're a good God, because you're a merciful God. That's why we appeal to you, God. Not because we've done something and deserve a blessing. Not because we've got something that uh, makes us special, but no, purely because you are God and for your glory and for your name. That's the basis of Daniel's appeal. And again, it's a sanctuary that is desolate, our desolations, the city. You know, it's very clear what is being prayed for. And verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, uh, sorry, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thy own sake. O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Uh, clearly, this portion of Daniel's prayer is now in regard to the city of Jerusalem that still lay in ruins, despite the fact that Cyrus has granted permission for the rebuilding of the temple, for the land uh, to be uh, set up again. Incredibly, it's not until the second year of Darius the Great, not to be confused with Darius the Mede, as we said earlier, it's 19 years later that the foundations of the temple were laid. So we kind of see Daniel's burden here. And it's incredible to realize that the objections of just a few locals, when we read about this in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra back in Jerusalem, they were enough to thwart the decree of a Persian king, Cyrus here, for 19 years. Cyrus has said they could go back and rebuild. But if they were prevented from rebuilding their temple, that's even more incredible when you're aware that the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be altered. You remember that from chapter six. And yet somehow... Because, of course, it was God's timing. When God's time was right, the decree came to pass and the desolations were ended. But up until that point, the Jews were seemingly powerless to rebuild because God was waiting for the 70 years, and he, as he'd foretold, as he prophesied, to come to an end. You know, but mark the contrast. Now, this is from... Uh, 
uh, from Haggai uh, chapter one verse fourteen. You know, the contrast here when the spirit. Uh, when, when God stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, uh, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You see, God is the one that then stirs up their spirits at the right time for the temple to be rebuilt. And notice from this point, the temple will be rebuilt in just a little over four years and two months. It's a staggering uh, work and accomplishment. But for 19 years, they've been waiting. 19 years it had taken to get to that point once because this second period of 70 years had to run its course. So thus Daniel's prayer was answered. You know, he's pleading here for his city, for it all to be sorted out and, and God to have mercy on them. You know, now whether it was in his lifetime or not, we don't know. You know, if Daniel had lived to see or hear of at least the rebuilding of the temple, he'd have been 102 when the foundations were laid and 106 when it was completed. Did Daniel live that long? We don't know. Uh, he passes off the scene in terms of the, the record that we have, but he may have lived that long. And I just wonder whether just like Simeon and Anna in the New Testament, God did allow Daniel to live to see his prayer answered. We don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. Uh, but it may well have been something God would have allowed Daniel to see or to hear of, uh, that his prayer had been answered and fulfilled. It's interesting as well that Daniel's real concern is for God's reputation, as we saw in verse 17, you know, and the city which is called by thy name and for thine own sake, for thy city, for thy people, for thy name. You see, it's all about God. It's God's reputation that he cares about more than his own. You know, for us, when we say that we uh, uh, we shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain, it's not about vocabulary. It's not about uh, swearing as such. It's about taking God's name upon ourselves. It's carrying his name, uh, representing him. And we should be more concerned about his name, his reputation than our own. You know, God had called this people his own and had made an everlasting covenant with their fathers. And Daniel is pleading with God on that basis. You know, God had brought them out of Egypt with outstretched hand. He defeated their foes before them. He brought them into the promised land and promised to put his name in the temple that Solomon had built. And that temple had been destroyed and the city was laying in ruins. And in addition, the people had been taken away captives into foreign lands, all of which had been prophesied. But none of this presented a good impression of the God of Israel to Israel's neighbors. And so just as Moses did in Exodus 32, if you remember back there, God had threatened to wipe out Israel and Moses pleaded with God. God said, I'll start a new nation with you, Moses. Well, Moses rejected and said, no, Lord, don't do that for your name's sake. And Daniel asked God to have mercy on his people and city simply for God's own glory. Again, not because they deserved it. Daniel's motivation to pray this prayer that we've just been looking at, this really passionate prayer, and I encourage you to go back and look at it again, meditate on it, uh, is almost certainly due to what Solomon said in First Chronicles chapter 6. And it bears a distinct resemblance to what Daniel prayed. Let's just look at that quickly. So First Chronicles chapter 6, this is at the dedication of the temple. Solomon prays this, if they, that's the people, the children of Israel, if they sin against thee, for there is no man which sinneth not. And thou be angry with them and deliver them over before their enemies. And they carry them away captives unto a land far off or near. I mean, think of Daniel in, in regard to this. He's well, well aware of this prayer. Yet if they bethink themselves in the land, whether they are carried captive and turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have done amiss, we have dealt wickedly. I mean, 
Isn't that the language that Daniel uses? I think Daniel probably had a copy of this in front of him. He's praying this very prayer that Solomon had said to pray in the very predicament that Daniel finds himself. If they return to thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, whether they have carried them captives and pray toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers toward the city, which thou hast chosen and toward the house, which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause and forgive thy people, which have sinned against thee. Now, at this point, there's a heavenly interruption. A visitor arrives. It's almost like a, a knock on the door. And Daniel, in that middle of that passionate prayer, suddenly is interrupted. We'll see that in a second. Verse 20. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Okay, notice this. Confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. And, now this is the second part of the prayer, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Uh, this is just confirmation that we've got two things here. He was confessing the sin of the people who have now been sent back to the land, but now praying for the land which they've been sent back to. <clears throat> he says, uh, okay, by the way, this is further confirmation that the servitude had ended, but the desolations were still ongoing. For he doesn't present his supplications for his people, uh, which surely would have done had they still been captive. In other words, he acknowledges and confesses the sins of the people, but his request is concerning Jerusalem. And so he says, yet while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, caused to fly swiftly. Okay, God had caused Gabriel to get there quick. Touch me about the time of the evening oblation. That's interesting, evening offering. That offering would have, should have been taking place in Jerusalem. Daniel aware that that evening offering should have been taking place for 70 years. It hadn't happened. And no doubt wondering about the captives that have returned, the 50,000 or so that went back, thinking about them. Were they there? What was the temple like? Were they able to start their offerings again? Well, it's at this time that this happens. And Daniel makes note of that particular point. But Daniel immediately recognizes Gabriel. That's interesting because it just shows that angels have identifiable characteristics. You know, we're told in scriptures that angels are spirits. They're ministers to them that are heirs of salvation. They're also able to dwell in bodies and they can appear in bodily form and to um, touch and to move physical objects if they choose, or rather as God commands. Gabriel, by the way, always appears in scripture on an errand to do with announcing the Messiah. And you'll see why that's so applicable as we move into the study next week. But just to close out these verses, uh, yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen the vision at the beginning, again, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And again, he notes that time, as I said, it wasn't a Babylonian ritual, but what was going on in Jerusalem or should have been going on in Jerusalem. Daniel's heart clearly with these things. Let's read this to you. Now, it was very likely that whilst he was praying, Daniel would have been thinking about those who were returning home to Jerusalem. No doubt by now on their way back, whose sins he'd been confessing and wondering what they would find, how bad a state the temple was really in. When would they be able to start sacrificing again as the law of Moses required? We can only guess what he was thinking. But one thing is clear, despite being in Babylon for 70 years, Daniel's mind was fixed on the things of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the covenants that God had made with his people. 
Daniel says, and he informed me and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. Sounds a good thing, doesn't it? That God's going to help Daniel to understand some of these incredible things that are going on. Again, there's a verse that underlines that God is not the author of confusion. He wants his people to know. God delights in telling the future before it happens and revealing it to his servants. The book of Revelation is given specifically to show unto his servants the things that must shortly come to pass, not to confuse us. And then the last verse for this morning, at the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment came forth. This is Gabriel speaking. And I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, we're going to get on to the vision next week. Lord willing, if the Lord doesn't come back first, uh, which is fine by me if he does. But verse 23 again, notice the beginning uh, at the beginning of thy supplications. Now, we've already been told that he was told that Gabriel traveled swiftly. The moment Daniel started praying, God responded, God acted, God answered and sent Gabriel with this response. I think that's incredible. You know, back in chapter one, verse, 20, verse 21 of chapter nine here, uh, Gabriel was caused to fly swiftly. It's as if God says to Gabriel, right, go and answer Daniel. Go on, quick, go, quick. You know, and I don't know how far the distance between heaven and earth in that sense, but how long it took uh, Gabriel to get there. But he, he goes straight away. And as Daniel starts praying, uh, Gabriel comes to give him this answer. You know, God is a God who hears. And it's a great comfort to realize that when Daniel set his face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, God dispatched Gabriel with the answer to his prayer immediately. You know, we too have got that great promise that whosoever you shall, or so whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. And notice also that Daniel in this verse is referred to as the greatly beloved it's a lovely expression you know that expression is reserved for those who are closest to god daniel here is referred to as such in john's gospel john highlights that he himself is referred to as the beloved disciple but that term is also used of the church you and i are also greatly beloved and to the ones whom god says are greatly beloved are those to whom he reveals his secrets of what he is going to do and of course, we were going to go into next week and we'll see this incredible vision, this prophecy that Gabriel gives. And it concerns not just the Jews, primarily it's focused on the Jews, but also the Gentiles. It's one of the most amazing prophecies in Scripture. Make sure you join us next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your mercy. Lord, it's those things that we appeal to. We have nothing in and of ourselves. We come only because of the blood and the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we come and we plead for your grace and for your mercy for our land, for this nation. Oh, Lord, how the church has failed and has followed after all sorts of idols and false things, Lord, false teachings, and have tried to deny the truth of your word. Lord, we've allowed so much into this land, Lord, because we've been silent. And we pray, Father, as Daniel prayed this morning, that you forgive us. You have mercy. We have done wickedly, Lord. But Lord, by your grace, because of your grace, Lord, for your glory, we pray again for a move of your spirit in this land. Oh, Lord, stir our heart with these things this morning, we pray. And we pray for your people, Israel, too, according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.